0: Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the Saga of World War II, a Belly project. This week, we finally get to the much-anticipated invasion of Russia. I don't know about you, but I've kind of been dying to get here. This is the big moment of the early war. I don't think we get another moment like this until at least the Normandy invasion. Before we get started, though, I just wanted to say a couple of things. First, please like and review the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. This is a great way to help other people find the show. Secondly, if any of you have any corrections you want to make on previous episodes or further questions for me, if there's just something that I didn't cover that you want to hear about, you can go ahead and go to Cassusbellypodcast.com and click on contact. Or you can simply email me at Cassusbellyguy at gmail.com. Belly is spelled C-A-S-U-S-B-E-L-L-I-G-U-Y at gmail.com whatever it is i'm happy to hear it feedback is always helpful finally i just want to thank all of you for listening i know the show hasn't been super consistent lately but i'm working on it episode 10 was the first episode to get over 1,000 listens in the first 24 hours and i'm very happy about achieving that benchmark anyway now let's actually begin the show i present to you episode 11 kicking in the door and definitely, there is danger ahead, danger against which we must prepare. defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields, and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. While the war raged in North Africa, the war at sea continued apace. Though the U-boat peril remained as thorny as ever, the German surface fleet was setting sail to raid Allied commerce as well. Despite the undersea threat, probably being the greater of the two, the pocket battleships Bismarck and Tirpitz loomed far larger in the minds of the British Admiralty. The Bismarck, and its sister ship the Tirpitz, were the largest vessels ever constructed by Germany, and among the largest ever built by a European power. They were designed to skirt under the limitations of the various naval treaties signed during the interwar years, and thus were something of technological marvels As discussed in episode 8. Though construction finished in 1939, the Bismarck would not complete its sea trials until August of 1940, and it was not until May of 1941 that it would be put to sea in offensive action. Operation Reinabung, as the Bismarck's mission was dubbed, was intended to be a commerce raid on Allied shipping in the North Atlantic. When the Bismarck embarked on May 18th, accompanied by the Prince Eugen, the British immediately felt their stomachs drop. Photos taken by reconnaissance aircraft showing the Bismarck passing through the Skagrack on May 21st, confirmed the Admiralty's fear that the Bismarck had been unleashed on their convoys. In response, the British redirected their own surface fleet to hunt the Bismarck. The HMS Hood and the Prince of Wales were dispatched from Scapa Flow, along with six destroyers, and Admiral Tovey set course to link up with them, followed by his own aircraft carrier and two more capital ships. Unfortunately for the Allies, the weather had turned foggy, making detection all the more difficult. After two days of searching, the Bismarck and Eugen were spotted in the waters between Iceland and Greenland by the HMS Suffolk. The Suffolk's captain immediately radioed the Bismarck's position and dove into a fog bank to conceal herself from German spotters. They continued to tail the Bismarck, though, with the help of their primitive radar systems, dodging occasional fire from their prey. As the Suffolk continued to relay position, heading, and speed, the rest of the Royal Navy was maneuvering to intercept. They were successful on the morning of May 23rd, when Hood and Prince of Wales spotted the Bismarck at 5.30 in the morning. For the next 20 minutes, the flotillas maneuvered against one another, Vice Admiral Holland attempting to close the distance with Vice Admiral Lutyens, so that the Bismarck would be forced to fire at a flatter trajectory. By getting closer, and thereby flattening the angle of fire, Holland would negate the disadvantage of his thinner deck armor. The drawback, of course, was that this meant the Hood and Prince of Wales could not bring all of their guns to bear, or as the German vessels could. And she did. The Bismarck opened fire at 0, 0553 with her 15-inch guns and struck the HMS Hood at 0, 0600. Due to the vessel still being several miles apart, the shells impacted at a higher angle than Holland had hoped and penetrated deep into the Hood, where they detonated the primary artillery magazine. The Hood went up an enormous explosion and was not so much sunk as completely destroyed. Only three of her crew survived. The Prince of Wales continued the battle, though. She continued to close with the Bismarck and managed to score a few punishing hits, specifically damaging the main fuel compartment. She would have to turn away, though. Her 14-inch guns were not reliably penetrating the Bismarck's armor, and she herself was sustaining too much damage. As the Prince of Wales sailed away, the Suffolk and Norfolk continued to trail and track the Bismarck, prepare another interdiction. This time, Admiral Tovey was bearing down with the HMS King George V and the Victorious. In addition, the Admiralty had decided to release the HMS Rodney, another battleship, from convoy escort duty, as well as the HMS Ark Royal, an aircraft carrier from the Mediterranean. Now the race was on. Admiral Lutyens had set course for the French port of Brest and needed to thread the needle of British interceptors. He almost succeeded. Over the night of May 24th and 25th, all contact with the Bismarck was lost. For 30 hours, the Royal Navy searched the seas desperately trying to re-establish contact with the disappearing battleship. On May 26th, a patrol aircraft spotted the German 700 miles northwest of Brest and alerted the fleet. The noose around the Bismarck was now beginning to tighten. The HMS Sheffield was pushed forward to confirm the sighting and to continue tracking the Bismarck until Admiral Tovey, now 100 miles northeast, could vector for an intercept and engage. As Admiral Tovey sped southward, the Ark Royal dispatched a flight of torpedo bombers to harass the Bismarck. In the confusion, they accidentally targeted the Sheffield, but once the mistake had been identified, the British forces were able to consolidate and launch a new attack. This time, the British Flyers found their target. Despite the chaos of the situation and the difficulty in coordinating an organized attack, one of the torpedo bombers was able to strike a hit on Bismarck's rudder, greatly hindering her. Soon afterward, the Sheffield was able to direct several destroyers that had just arrived on the scene to harass the enemy. The guns may not have been very effective against the Bismarck's thick armor, but they did have the effect of keeping her gunners awake all night and exhausting the crew. By the morning of the 27th, Bismarck's fatigued gunners spotted Admiral Tovey's forces bearing down on them. At 0848, the King George V., and the Rodney opened fire, and by 10.15, the Bismarck had gone from wounded to a sputtering wreck. Finally, the cruiser HMS Dorsetshire delivered the final blow with a torpedo, and thus ended the short career of the KMS Bismarck. Despite having sunk the pride of the German high seas fleet, the threat to shipping remained as insidious as ever. Though a great moral victory, the sinking of the Bismarck did little to alter the state of the war in the Atlantic. The primary weapon in the battle was the U-boat, not the battleship. In the coming years, the amount of tonnage sunk would only increase until the Allies found a way to counter the German submarines. Hitler's attention was hardly focused on the long, tedious war in the Atlantic, though. Instead, he gazed eastward, toward the vast expanses of Russia and Ukraine. For years, he had been dreaming up his conquest of the east in order to provide Lebensraum, or living room, for the German people. There, he envisioned a landscape of farms worked by forced Slavic labor, guarded by cohorts of SS troops. Conquering the wide stretches of fertile farmland would solve Germany's reliance on food imports, as well as provide a release valve for slowly overpopulating German cities. In order to fulfill his dream, he concocted Operation Barbarossa, named for the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick I Barbarossa, or Redbeard, whom Hitler idealized. According to legend, Barbarossa lay in a deep slumber in the mountains of Turinga, awaiting the day when he would rise and conquer all of Europe. In his own mind, Hitler was the reincarnated Barbarossa, conquering all of Europe, and as time went on, he became more obsessed with destroying not only Russia, but the Slavic peoples. He considered Slavs to be a despicable race, not fit to live alongside glorious Germans. Barbarossa wasn't just conquest, it was a crusade, for his pseudo-scientific delusions and a campaign of extermination of the Russian language, culture, and practices. Not everyone had fallen under Hitler's spell though. Many in the government and the army simply humored Hitler or followed his orders out of a sense of patriotic duty. Few in the upper echelons of the German state had any illusions about what invading Russia would entail in terms of men and material. Rudolf Hess in particular, Hitler's deputy Führer, was terrified of it. He had vivid memories of the kind of disaster a two-front war had been in the First World War and saw only ruin and defeat in Barbarossa. Hess wasn't the only one who protested. Hermann Goering and Erich Rader voiced their concerns as well, but Hitler's determination was solid. Besides, he thought the Soviet Union to be an easy opponent. If the puny Finns could nearly defeat them, surely the mighty Germans would simply brush them aside. Unlike Goering and Rader, Hess was prepared to take bold action to save Germany from the doom of a two-front war. Since war with the United Kingdom had begun, Hess had been mulling over the idea of personally negotiating with the English. He thought that they would certainly see the reason in ceasing hostilities. They were isolated on their island, after all, and Germany controlled all of Europe. Surely, all they needed was to be convinced. Hitler believed the idea to be futile, and dismissed it. But on the eve of Barbarossa, Hess felt that he simply couldn't wait any longer. On the evening of May 10th, 1941, Hess handed off a letter to his adjutant, Carl Pinch, donned a Luftwaffe uniform, and entered the cockpit of an ME-110. Within minutes, he was aloft and flying towards Scotland. On two separate occasions, he evaded RAF patrols and made it to the estate of the Duke of Hamilton. After parachuting down, he was confronted by a farmer armed with a pitchfork. Hess told the man he wanted to see the Duke. Upon seeing the Deputy Fuhrer, the Duke was beside himself. Standing there in his home was Rudolf Hess, the second highest-ranking Nazi. He immediately phoned London. The agents of Westminster who took hold of Hess soon learned that Hess was hardly an authority. He told them that they must surrender, that they would soon be strangled by the Kriegsmarine, and their island nation would fall. He also downplayed the pending invasion of Russia. The British soon realized Hess was essentially worthless, and kind of a nut job. He had held little actual power in Germany, and had been away from the centers of power for years. Not really knowing what to do with him, the British locked him up, and before long, pretty much forgot about him. Back in Germany, Pinch had to deliver Hess's letter to Hitler, and he was dreading it. He must have known what Hess was up to, and Hitler was notoriously ill-receptive of bad news. At first. Der Fuhrer reacted as if he had learned that his own brother had died in some horrible accident. He wept and he cried out in agonized grief. Rudolf Hess had been his closest confidant and friend. They were comrades in arms, an ideology, going all the way back to the Liszt Regiment. Hess had been at his side since the heady days of street fighting, was a fellow prisoner in Landsberg, and had supported him during the Night of the Long Knives, and now he was gone. Hitler's expression soon cleared, though as he realized the enormous threat Hess now posed to him. The deputy Führer was very knowledgeable of Barbarossa and certainly would reveal those planes under torture. In a panic, he ordered Gering to scramble fighters to shoot down the rogue ME-110. In reality, it was far too late. Not only was Hess no longer anywhere near Germany, but how were the Luftwaffe pilots supposed to identify Hess's aircraft? Two days later, on May 12th, the news of Hess's defection, surrender, delusional gambit, was disseminated in a party memo. As intelligence reports came in over the ensuing days and weeks Hitler's fears of betrayal were allayed. Hess was in enemy custody but he had not revealed any plans. To Hitler's complete bafflement he had not been tortured. Thus, the show had to go on. Hitler's seemingly unmitigated success in expanding the Reich in the past few years also served to close his mind. He had an enormously inflated sense of self in addition to his predilection for messianic ideation. So in him, you had this toxic stew of psychophantic leadership, racial vendetta, overconfidence, and delusions of grandeur. At this point, Hitler was almost certainly well on his way to madness. Whether this was due to drug abuse, disease, or a personality defect is a subject all its own. I would wager that any man placed in such a station would probably have difficulty keeping back the megalomania, so it's no surprise that Hitler was so uniquely prone to it. Hitler's fixation on decisive battle once again revealed itself in Barbarossa. Unsatisfied with slowly encircling and starving Britain or severing her from her colonial dominions, Hitler wanted more grand campaigns and swift victories. This desire, combined with his outright refusal to hear dissenting opinions, would prove disastrous. Hermann Goering, Heinz Guderian, and Admiral raider, tried as they might to nudge the Fuhrer in a better direction, but it was futile. The only voices he would tolerate were those of his yes-men like Goebbels and Keitel, and they only reaffirmed his belief that Russia would fall quickly, and that Moscow would be a blazing ruin by September. Regardless, on June 14, 1941, one week before the invasion began, the Fuhrer gave a speech before his assembled commanders outlining Barbarossa and his rationalizations for it. Few but the most ardent Nazis were convinced. They knew the peril of a two-front war. They also knew that during the Blitzkrieg campaign of 1940, all but seven army divisions took part. Now, with France, the Low Countries, and Norway under occupation, 49 divisions would have to be left in the West to maintain those conquests. Still, an absolute horde of men and machines was massed on the 1,800-mile-long Russian border. The invading forces comprised of 134 German divisions, 18 Finnish, 14 Romanian, plus contingents from Italy, Czechia, and Hungary. All told, over 2 million men and 300,000 horses were stretched along the frontier supported by 3,200 tanks, 2,400 aircraft, and 10,000 artillery pieces. In addition to these were the countless wheeled vehicles, including trucks, motorcycles, and armored cars. Just to the rear of the front line, the men and machines were supported by a monumental logistics train. Hundreds of thousands of tons of supplies would be needed just to get the juggernaut rolling over the starting line, not to mention to sustain this army in the field. Supply depots were stacked to the brim with food, fuel, and fodder, millions of rounds of ammunition and artillery shells, countless barrels of petrol, and spares for absolutely everything. Supporting this was yet another armada of 500,000 trucks waiting to bring it all forward after the invasion began. It was truly an awesome concentration of force. The invasion was to be broken down into three overarching thrusts. Army Group North, on the far left, commanded by Wilhelm von Lieb, was to drive straight for Leningrad. Army Group South, commanded by Gerd von Rundstedt, was tasked with sweeping through Ukraine, ultimately toward Kiev. The greater part of the invasion was concentrated north of the Pripet marshes, specifically in army Group center. Field Marshal Bach was assigned to two panzer groups, commanded by Generals Hoth and Guderian. Supporting them were the 4th and 9th armies. Though their ultimate goal was, of course, Moscow, their immediate goal was to cross the River Bug, capture Brest-Litovsk, then diverge. Hoth would lead a pincer in a northern arc, and Guderian a southern. They would meet at the city of Minsk, and hopefully encircle the Russian defenders to the west. From there, they would leapfrog to Smolensk. The pivot around all of this turned was the Pripyat Marshes, an enormous 100,000 square mile bog filled with rivulets and tributaries of the Pripyat River, stretching from southern Belarus to northwestern Ukraine. They represented a formidable barrier to any army, modern or otherwise, and were virtually impassable aside from sparse country trails to all but light infantry. So rather than try to navigate the labyrinth of streams and ponds, the German army simply decided to bypass it entirely. This also allowed the Germans to effect greater concentration in their primary thrusts. The invasion of Russia was supposed to take eight weeks, but two primary factors would inhibit this. First, Hitler insisted that the invasion take place over a broad front. He wanted to create a giant pincer that would overwhelm the Russians on all fronts. By doing this, however, He reduced his concentration of forces and reduced the effectiveness of his drives eastward. Additionally, this likely caused his units to break down earlier. Had he concentrated his forces in one central drive toward Moscow, perhaps he could have kept more troops fresh to be rotated into actual combat later. Instead, far more men were engaged in battle simultaneously. By concentrating on a single drive, he may well have gotten through the Russian resistance that did eventually materialize in the Muscovite suburbs. Alas, this is all speculation. The debate over whether seizing Moscow or destroying the Soviet land forces was the correct strategy is one for a later episode. The second factor that slowed the German advance was the underdeveloped Russian countryside. One element that gave Blitzkrieg such unmitigated success in Western Europe was the high state of infrastructure development. Everywhere in Belgium, France, and the Netherlands, there were roads. And not just crummy ox trails, real roads meant for cars and lorries. This is critical when your army is reliant on wheeled vehicles. For all the military innovation in the German army, they had not made their armored divisions fully tracked. Only the tanks were able to go completely cross-country. All other logistics elements still had to travel by the same way they had always moved. This meant that armored divisions were still tied to the roads just like everyone else. In the Russian countryside, this would prove to be an enormous obstacle. Roads were few and often narrow and unimproved, usually little more than sandy trails. To make matters worse, there were basically no accurate maps of the Russian countryside. Commanders were never 100% sure where a particular road led. If it happened to be pointing in roughly the right direction, they would just start driving down it and hope for the best. These were difficult enough to travel during the summer, when the weather was dry, during the fall and spring, they developed into nearly impassable muddy lanes. Even in fair weather though, enormous German columns were concentrated into few snaking tracks. The armor could race ahead, but eventually it would have to halt and wait for its supply trains and supporting infantry to catch up. These problems would take time to manifest themselves though. The early stages of the invasion were a resounding success for the Wehrmacht. On June 22nd, 1941, one year after the armistice with France, The war with the Soviet Union began. German columns poured over the Russian frontier, smashing to pieces any Russian defenders they came across. Within days, all three prongs of the invasion had achieved their initial objectives and were hurtling forward, deeper into Russia. In the air, too, the war was going extremely well. The Luftwaffe was making easy work of the ill-maintained Soviet air force and had effectively destroyed it by the second week of the war. So far, Hitler appeared to be correct in his prediction that, quote, We only have to kick in the front door and the whole rotten Russian edifice will come crumbling down. End quote. By June 27th, the lead elements of Army Group Center had reached the outskirts of Minsk. Hoth's Panzer Group 3 had traveled an incredible 200 miles in five days and were waiting on the coming Panzer Group 2 to engage in a simultaneous assault on the city. These deep penetrations assault, though, left lots of enemy soldiers in the rear. And unlike in France a year earlier, these men were not ready to simply give up. There were several pockets of them. The garrison at Brest-Litovsk hadn't been captured, but simply surrounded and held out. In Bialystok, Volkowitsk, and Novgorodok, there were roughly 30 divisions encircled, but still dangerous. Though the Russian army was outmatched, the Russian soldier was a hardy soul who could survive privation with stubborn resilience. Though many of them melted away in the face of the German onslaught, they did not simply disappear into the earth. They vanished into the deep forests where the Germans couldn't reach them, seeing as they were tied to the road network. There, the Russian soldiers would either find a way back to their own line or continue the fight where they were by either joining encircled troops or becoming partisans. A huge number were captured, though. By July 2nd, 150,000 Red Army soldiers had been captured, along with 1,200 tanks and 600 heavy artillery pieces. Now the question arose of who would actually deal with these encircled pockets. The Panzer Generals believed that following infantry armies were responsible, but those commanders wanted armored support. For the time being, many of them were basically besieged. The Light Armies not able to deliver the death blow, but the tankers rolling still further ahead. For the most part, Russian resistance was basically null during the first days. Bridges were not blown, and many garrisons were caught still in bed. The Soviet armed forces were just completely unprepared. When headquarters elements signaled to Hire that they were under attack, the men receiving the communiques could hardly comprehend what they were hearing. Even Stalin himself was flabbergasted. He undertook massive mental gymnastics to rationalize the invasion. He told himself that it was a rogue group of men who took it upon themselves to attack. He just couldn't believe that Hitler would betray him. There was no declaration of war. And what of the non-aggression pact? While Stalin grappled with his existential crisis, Molotov conducted much of the defense coordination. It was Molotov who addressed the country and told the people that they were under attack and reassured them that Hitler would certainly suffer the same fate as Napoleon. In London, the Russian envoy tried desperately to contact Stalin to tell and communicate Churchill's offer of aid. After spending eleven days fending off a complete mental breakdown, locked away in his study, muttering to himself, Stalin emerged. On July 3rd he addressed the nation. In a half defeated voice he tried to convince the nation and himself that they would prevail. He told the people of non existent victories and counter attacks. He tried to justify the Non Aggression Pact, stating that it had given him two extra years to prepare. He could hardly admit to the people or to himself that the Germans were issuing crushing defeats left and right, and that the entire Red Army had essentially caved in on itself. But then his tone changed. He began telling the people that they needed to execute a scorched-earth strategy. Nothing could fall into enemy hands. Anything that could not be carried east must be destroyed. Grain could not be left behind. It must either be shipped away or burned in its silos. Cattle that couldn't be hauled away in trains were to be butchered in the fields they grazed. Gasoline poured out. Any person that was unable to escape was to become a partisan and harass the passing German column supply lines. Finally, he was the man of steel again. Koba was back.